Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In Albert Camus' Myth of Sisyphus, there is a section called Absurd Freedom. And in that portion of the text, which is also going to include the introduction of his ethics of quantity, he is drawing out some of the implications for us of the doctrine of the absurd or the realization of the absurd. And if we take this seriously in his view, we are going to revise our conceptions of freedom. We're going to realize that some of them aren't really that helpful, that they're illusions when it comes down to it, and we replace them with something else. And he calls this a liberation, and you know, that's a good term to use. Liberation means being granted freedom. So by getting straight about what sort of freedom we really have, and liberating ourselves or freeing ourselves of other notions of freedom, we in fact become more free, or at least we become free in the sense that, according to him, human beings can be free. So this section begins by reiterating some points that he's made earlier in the text about the human condition. He says, I hold certain facts from which I cannot separate. This is all the earlier development. He says, what I know, what is certain, what I cannot deny, what I cannot reject, this is what counts. He's carried out this process of analysis. He's also carried out some critique of the existentialist for engaging in a sort of philosophical suicide. And now he's got some things that he can rely on. What are they? He says, I can negate everything of that part of me that lives on vague nostalgias, except this desire for unity, this longing to solve, this need for clarity and cohesion. So the human being is caught within, it's not even a dilemma because you can't choose it once and for all. It's a perpetual condition that has its roots down into our affective being. We have a desire for something that cannot really exist. He says that I can refute everything in this world that offends or enraptures me except this chaos, this sovereign chance this divine equivalence which springs from anarchy. I don't know whether this world has a meaning that transcends it. I do know that I don't know that meaning and that it is impossible for me just now to know it. If you think about what he's saying here, it seems very dogmatic in some respects, but it's also very careful and measured. There could be some sort of meaning to life. I don't know what it is. I don't know how to find it. I, whatever it's going to be, if it's going to appeal to me, it's going to have to be on my terms, and I'm just not finding anything like that. So we come to the triad of the absurd, which is that it's not just the world that's absurd, right? It is the desire on my part for things to actually make sense the fact that the world, if it does make sense, it doesn't make sense in the way that I want it to. And then there's this divorce between us. Camus has said earlier that the absurd encompasses all three of these. So you don't have just an absurd world by itself. The world is absurd because of the demands that we make upon it and even on ourselves as things in the world. So awareness of this conflict is going to be what's what's really important. And he's got this interesting passage where he says, 
If I were a tree among trees, a cat among animals, this life would have a meaning. And then he takes that back immediately and says, or rather this problem would not arise. I would belong to this world. I would be this world to which I am now opposed by my whole consciousness and my whole insistence on familiarity. This ridiculous reason is what sets me in opposition, right? So he goes on and he says, you know, this is the conflict. This is the basis of the conflict, the break between the world and my mind. It lies in our awareness of it. And that may seem like a very simple thing to get rid of. Why not just take some drugs and numb yourself to it or find an ideology that will tell you the meaning of the world? You can do that. A human being is free to do whatever they want. That is part of what Camus calls a certain kind of suicide, though, not remaining with the absurd. And so he advocates something that he calls a method, one of persisting. He says it is a matter of persisting. At a certain point on his path, the absurd man is tempted. At not just a certain point, over and over again. We live in cultures that are tempting us, right? But so there's this method of persisting. Now, this is quite interesting because he's making us a, a sort of promise here that might not pan out for everybody. He tells us a little bit earlier than that. He says, let's make a final effort in this regard, draw all, all, all of our conclusions. The body, affection, creation, action, human nobility will then resume their places in this mad world. That's a list that's worth dwelling on for a moment. The body, right? The body that we are or inhabit, however we're going to think about it. That's a key theme for phenomenological and existential philosophy in the 20th century. This, this, what is this thing that I am, right? And you could also say that in part for the French, this is part of their heritage of Cartesianism, right? How do you explain the junction between the body and whatever it is that transcends the body that I am conscious of being, right? Affection, all the affective states that we encounter. Creation. Now, what does he mean there? He's not talking about divine creation. He's talking about creative work of artists, of novelists like himself, playwrights, of anybody who is engaging in doing something that brings something new into the world, even if it's not completely radically new. Action, the whole domain of ethics, right? Then he says human nobility. Oftentimes existentialism is viewed as this, you know, very cynical philosophy. It unveils the fact that we're all a bunch of bastards deep down inside. And you might even like look at, you know, Camus' companion piece to this, the stranger and the character Marceau and be like, see, look at that. But Camus says, no, 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 human nobility is possible even in this world that we find to be, you know, in our relation to it, absurd. So how do we get that back? Well, through this method of persisting, and he talks about the temptations that we could encounter. He says, history is not lacking in religions, prophets, even without gods, we're asked to leap. It could be, you know, joining the, the Communist Party. It could be believing in capitalism and the invisible hand and third way, whatever it's going to be, however it's going to be framed, you know, liberalism. It could be anything that you like. It could be the hope in the singularity and the AIs figuring everything out for us. Those are all leaps from Camus' perspective. And so he goes on and he says, if we resist this temptation, 
we take a certain stance. We don't want to do anything but what we fully understand. And that is viewed by other people as the sin of pride. He tells us that this is a kind of innocence. What we feel is irreparable innocence. That's what allows us everything. And so he says what he demands of himself is to live solely with what he knows, to accommodate himself to what is, to bring in nothing that is not certain. He is told that nothing is certain, that is. But this at least is a certainty. And he says, is it possible for him to live? Can he find a way to live, as he says, without appeal? And Camus calls this a kind of metaphysical revolt, a way of saying no to how things are set up. And he tells us the theme of permanent revolution is carried into individual existence. What is this theme of permanent revolution? Again, a bit of background in 20th century, we might, we could say broader continental thought, this idea that there would be like a continual redoing of things. And Camus doesn't think that that works socially, politically. You know, he's, he's uh, not pessimistic, but he's realistic about movements. But he thinks it could be done on an individual level. And that would be a way of, of preserving freedom. So he tells us instead of renunciation, what we should be aiming at that we already have to some degree is consciousness and revolt. We should be continually not hiding things from ourselves, not allowing ourselves to slip into fantasies or you might say a sort of consumerism. And we could say consumerism very broadly. So it's not just the economic marketplace, but the marketplace of attention and ideas as well. We should avoid any sort of utopianism. We should also avoid any sort of do nothing cynicism or misanthropy instead. All of those would be forms of renunciation, consciousness, remaining conscious of the absurdity that we're within and revolt against it. By contrast, suicide, whether it be physical suicide or philosophical suicide, he says, suicide is acceptance at its extreme. Everything is over and the human being returns to their essential history, their future, their unique and dreadful future. He sees it and rushes towards it. Suicide settles the absurd. It, it engulfs the absurd in death. In order to keep alive, the absurd cannot be settled. So you have to remain within the painful condition, within the condition of not being able to say once and for all the way things are. And so you might say, well, what does all this have to do with freedom? Well, this is setting up the, the stage. To liberate oneself of these temptations is, in a certain sense, freedom. And he goes on before he, he jumps into actually talking about freedom. He says a few other things. He says... Revolt gives life its value spread over the whole length of a life. It restores its majesty to that life. To a person devoid of blinders, there is no finer sight than that of the intelligence at grips with a reality that transcends it. The reality that we're in, that of the, the world and that of the absurd. So he says to impoverish that reality whose inhumanity constitutes human majesty is tantamount to impoverishing oneself. So he says, consciousness and revolt. These rejections are the contrary of renunciation. Everything that is indomitable and passionate in a human heart quickens them on the contrary with its own life. It's essential to die unreconciled and not of one's own free will. And you can say, well, that sounds awfully unfree, right? Dying without your choice of dying. Isn't that the opposite of freedom? And, and in a way it is. Freedom is taken away. You can no longer do anything, but you have the freedom to say no. 
So let's talk now where he goes explicitly into discussing freedom. He calls this the second paradox. And the second paradox is, in order to remain faithful to my method, I have nothing to do with the problem of metaphysical liberty. What, what is he talking about there? So this is the traditional problem that we introduce people to in intro to philosophy classes and textbooks, and that so many psychologists salivate over and love to get into, even though they're usually not qualified to talk much about it and haven't done much of the literature review, of the problem of, are we, as the kind of beings that we are, do we actually have real freedom or are we stuck in a universe of causes chained to each other so that one cause is the effect from another cause all the way down to a determinism that covers everything? Is there a, a space for liberty and would it, what would it look like? Is it a liberty of indifference? Camus says, I don't care about any of that stuff. I mean, I do care about it. It's interesting. If I have to talk about it, I'll talk about it. It's not relevant to what I'm doing here is what he's saying. And this is a very radical step, is it not? Right? He's setting aside this problem. Why? He says, knowing whether or not man is free doesn't interest me. I can only experience my own freedom. As to it, I have no general notions. I can have no general notions, but merely a few clear insights. The problem of freedom as such has no meaning. It's too abstract. It's turned into sort of a textbook case. And people make all sorts of arguments about it, but their arguments aren't particularly on point when it comes to the, the concrete lived reality that we're in. You know, people spend all sorts of ink or pixels now to demonstrate that there is no freedom. It's just an illusion. And they're off target as far as Camus is concerned. He also points out another thing. He says that this problem of freedom is linked in a different way with the problem of God. Knowing whether or not man is free involves knowing whether or not he can have a master. The absurdity peculiar to this problem, notice that he's saying this problem itself is absurd. Go back earlier in the book and you, you notice him talking about some of the stances people get into philosophically are absurd. So he says, the absurdity comes from the fact that the very notion that makes the problem of freedom possible takes away its meaning. In the presence of God, there's less a problem of freedom than a problem of evil. You know the alternative. Either we're not free and God, the all-powerful, is responsible for evil, or we're free and responsible, but God is not all-powerful. And so he's going to set that aside. And he says, I cannot get lost in the glorification or mere definition of a notion which eludes me and loses its meaning as soon as it goes beyond the frame of reference of my individual experience. I don't understand what kind of freedom would be given to me by a higher being. I've lost the sense of hierarchy. And he goes on and says something really interesting. He tells us that the only freedom, the only conception of freedom I can have is that of the prisoner or the individual in the midst of the state. The only one I know is freedom of thought and action. Right? So that's my experience of freedom. All this metaphysical stuff, that's very nice. We'll put that aside. And then he says, there's a liberation taking place here. If the absurd cancels all my chances of eternal freedom, it restores and magnifies, on the other hand, my freedom of action. And then there's one other thing he says in that immediately following that really expands this. That privation of hope and future means an increase in man's availability, disponibilité, the capacity to be there, to lend oneself to things, to, to act on a human level. So he's, he's set aside this, this problem of metaphysical liberty. What do we get then? What is this experience of freedom? Here he's going to make a contrast between before and after the awareness of the absurd, and then two different possibilities with awareness of the absurd. So he tells us, before encountering the absurd, the everyday person lives with aims, 
questions, a concern with the future or for justification. They weigh their chances. They count on someday retirement, the labor of their children. They still think that something in their life can be directed. So one of the basic ideas or not even ideas, assumptions governing human action is that we can make choices that are meaningful. We can predict to some degree, even if we can't control entirely. So he says he still thinks something in his life can be directed, which means that he acts as if he were free, even if all the facts make a point of contradicting that liberty. And, and all the facts don't have to be metaphysical stuff. It could be stuff like, oh, I'm going to, you know, think about my retirement. And one of the facts could be hyperinflation destroys the savings that I I have. And now I just don't have that. Now I, now I have to rethink what I'm doing. I, some freedom has been taken away from me, something I, I planned for. So he says, after the absurd, everything is upset. That idea that I am my way of acting as if everything has a meaning, all that has been given the lie in vertiginous fashion by the absurdity of a possible death. Now, why focus on death there? He doesn't actually need to. He could bring in other things as well, other forms of things going awry. But death is ultimate, right? It could be that I make all these great plans and I walk out, and bam, I get hit by the bus or, uh, you know, safe as in cartoons falls on my head, which actually does happen in, in real life. People get killed by pianos coming down. I mean, it's kind of ridiculous and absurd, isn't it? That sometimes life imitates not just art, but the mass production art of silly entertainment cartoons. That's the way things sometimes work. So there's an awareness that's being developed here. And he tells us this awareness is that the higher liberty, that freedom to be, which alone can serve as a basis for truth, it doesn't exist. I don't need that though. It says death is there is the only reality. After death, the chips are down. I'm not even free to perpetuate myself, but a slave and a slave without hope of eternal revolution. And so he said, what kind of freedom can exist without assurance of eternity? And he says, well, the freedom of the absurd person. So there's a compensation here, a realization that's taking place. Before that, though, he talks about another realization. He says, the absurd man realizes that hitherto he was bound to that postulate of freedom on the illusion of which he was living in a certain sense that hampered him to the extent which he imagined a purpose of this life. He adapted himself to the demands of a purpose to be achieved, became slave of liberty. And this involves the social world. This involves more than just me and my relation to the world. It involves the entire realm of interconnected meanings that are what we call culture, society, right? Even the, the branches of it that we, you know, distinguish as entertainment, politics, law, religion, day-to-day -day work, getting on the subway, you know, transit, philosophy. We were engaged in a adaptation to the social world of others, and that's in many respects unfree. He lingers on this and he says, I think I can choose to be this or that rather than something else. I think so unconsciously. At the same time, I strengthen my postulate with the beliefs of those around me, with the presumptions of my human environment. But insofar as I'm adapting my life to them, the absurd person realizes they weren't truly free. What happens when you become conscious of the absurdity and remain within it? You're like, well, a lot of this is BS. I actually don't have to buy into this sort of stuff. I don't have to do what's expected of me. I can do what's expected of me, but do it in my own way on my own terms. That is so liberating to realize, right? So there's this new possibility of what he calls an inner freedom. 
Before that, though, he, he says, the absurd man realizes he was not truly free in accepting the meaning of having a meaning. I create for myself barriers between which I can find my life. I do so. And now I can reject that. I can, I can adopt an inner freedom. And he says, the absurd enlightens me on this point. There is no future. I can't rely on anything. This is the reason for, as he says, my inner freedom. And he brings up, he calls them two comparisons here. He's not trying to outline all of the possibilities of inner freedom, but he's using this to contrast against the mystics. He's in just a bit going to talk about the existentialists as well. So what does he think that mystics do? Mystics find freedom in giving themselves, losing themselves in their God, accepting the rules. They become secretly free. But he calls this a spontaneously accepted slavery in which they discover a deeper independence. And he says, what does that actually mean? It may be said they feel free with regard to themselves, but not so much free as liberated. And he says the absurd person does something different. They're released from everything outside that passionate attention crystallizing in him. He enjoys a freedom with regard to common rules. Here he says, the existentialists start out right. They, they get it to some degree. And then what Camus is calling existentialists, uh, you know, of course, are not the entire range of the existentialist movement, which often includes him. But people like Kierkegaard, Shestov, Jaspers, he says that they make a leap into the absurd essentially as God. And in doing so, they're, they're committing philosophical suicide. So we don't want to follow them there. But their original starting point is dead on, right? Everything is up to us. He says, in the same way, the slaves of antiquity did not belong to themselves. They knew that freedom, which consists in not feeling responsible. So losing oneself in that bottomless certainty, feeling remote from one's life to increase it and take a broad view of it. This involves the principle of a liberation and it takes the place of illusions, right? So he calls this reasonable freedom, the divine availability that condemned man before whom the prison doors open in a certain certain early dawn. It is clear that death and the absurd are here the principles of the only reasonable freedom, that which a human heart can experience and live. And this is coming back to the, the original starting point. We are caught within a human condition, according to Camus. It is one in which we can experience freedom and not just experience it passively, but also you might say, make use of it active. And it doesn't have to be connected to some sort of grounding or far off heaven or anything like that of, of pure freedom, of metaphysical freedom. We can actually do without that and still be free and thereby responsible beings. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.